We take for granted that the satellites flying above us, giving us GPS signals and beaming down video for millions of people, are going to stay up there. What goes into ensuring a stable orbit and avoiding having all these satellites crash back to Earth? I'm Roger Chang, and this is your Daily Charge. With me to answer this question is someone much smarter than me. This is our resident big brain, Stephen Shanklin. Welcome, Shank. Good morning. So you have a nice explainer on how orbits work, and you talked to one of these professors who called orbits roadways in space. Which I, I, I like that. I like that idea. How does orbiting around the Earth work, and how do scientists and engineers actually ensure something like a satellite maintains a stable orbit around us? Orbits, I think, are underappreciated. What you might not realize is space is actually pretty close. It's only about 60 miles up, which, yeah, okay, that's a lot. But, you know, if you get in your car and drive 60 miles, it's not like going to some entirely new zone in the universe, right? But space is very different. It turns out the hard part about space is not getting up 60 miles. It's getting so that you're moving horizontally fast enough to stay in orbit. So if you go up, you come right back down. But if you go horizontally fast enough, you stay in orbit. And that's where that roadways in space comment is germane. Because what it means basically is you're going fast enough that you don't fall down and hit the earth, right? You don't go, uh, you stay up there. And it's, it's pretty neat. There's some atmospheric drag, but mostly if you put a satellite in orbit, it just keeps whizzing around the earth. And that's pretty remarkable. One of the, actually, I, when I was researching this story, one of my, the fav- my favorite parts of it was looking at what is called Newton's cannonball. So Isaac Newton, right? Gravity, light, all this stuff uh, back in the uh, 1600s. He had actually a really good thought experiment that reveals, I think, in a pretty clear way how orbits work. He said, imagine you're up at the top of a very high mountain and you shoot a cannonball horizontally. Now, if you shoot it with a certain speed, it goes and flies a little ways and then plops down, hits the earth. Fire it a little harder, it goes farther and hits the earth. But if you fire it at just the right speed, the gravity that pulls the cannonball down exactly balances the curvature of the earth. So it just keeps on going around the earth. Now in the real world, that's not possible because there aren't any mountains high enough and there's air resistance and all that kind of thing. But it still shows, I think, pretty elegantly what an orbit is. It's this balance of of an object, a spacecraft, falling down because of Earth's gravity, but also moving horizontally fast enough that it that it keeps on going around Earth in, in an orbit. Well, that's an interesting trick because you talk about moving horizontally at the right speed. When I see rockets launch, they're, they're launching up vertically, right? Not, not horizontally. So how do you get from that tremendous boost up vertically uh, to a point where it goes horizontal and is stable enough to actually maintain its orbit? Sure. This is one of the tricks of rocket rocketry. And this is why when people talk about rocket science, it's not easy, right? Rockets actually almost immediately start turning sideways right after launch. So yes, at launch, they go up and they use a lot of fuel to go up, but the majority of the fuel they use is to go sideways. So when you watch a space shuttle or a SpaceX launch or any of these rockets, you'll note that it starts tipping over toward the east usually. And it tips over more and more and more and more. If you watch a SpaceX launch, they actually have a very nice uh, 3D computer view that shows the track of the rocket. And you can see that very rapidly, it's going sideways more than it's going up. So the vast majority of the uh, energy needed to put a rocket into orbit is 
pushing it sideways, not up. If you look at some of these rockets, like uh, New Shepard from Blue Origin, that's Jeff Bezos's rocket startup, those just go up and down. And that's actually a lot easier than going sideways, which is what SpaceX does when it gets a satellite into orbit or an ISS launch capsule with some astronauts in it. It's a lot harder to go sideways. And yeah, you, you know, you, you talk about the fact that this is rocket science, this is not easy stuff. Uh, calculating, you know, I guess when it needs a turn or how it gets to the appropriate velocity to actually maintain its orbit. Like how difficult is that to calculate? It's pretty difficult. And you it's it's not just the calculation, it's also the execution. So you have to steer the rocket. And what you have to realize about a rocket is it's it, you're sitting on top of a controlled explosion. So you can think of something like, uh, you know, some TNT blowing up or something. It's, you know, catastrophic, huge release of energy. A rocket is the same kind of thing. It's a chemical explosion. And you just control it just enough <laughs> that the thrust is channeled in one direction. So it's pretty hard to get this balance just right. It's easier these days because you have advanced computers, you have accelerometers all over the place that know just exactly how much thrust is pointing which direction. And you have radar tracking stations that can give lots of details about a launch. So it's it's easier than it was, you know, back in the Apollo missions 50 years ago or something like that. But yeah, it's still really hard. The interesting thing about orbits is uh, this is something that I came to appreciate when I was researching this story a, a bit more is there are lots of different orbits. I sort of thought of an orbit as, oh, yeah, you know, you're kind of whizzing around in a circle above the Earth. But it turns out there are lots of other orbits. There are ones that are much more eccentric, more elliptical, where you whiz fast by the Earth and then you go out in a big loop much slower, farther away. There are higher orbits, there are lower orbits, there are transfer orbits, there are crazy things, uh, di different, um, lots of different types of orbits. So it's it's kind of this smorgasbord. It's not just one type of satellite looping around in one type of circle. Yeah, I wanted to get into that. The low Earth orbit in particular, that seems to be where a lot of these, uh, these newer satellites are on. Tell me a little bit about that. Where exactly or what satellites would fit in that category that would be in low earth orbit low earth orbit leo leo as a lot of people call it that's where a lot of the action is at these days for space so it's about 200 kilometers up at the at the lowest elevation up to about 2000 kilometers roughly um it's uh, about 1200 miles it's uh, where a lot of weather satellites go communication satellites spy satellites it's relatively close to the earth that means that satellites go around the Earth pretty fast, uh, about once every 90 minutes or so, they make an orbit of the Earth. So that means that they're, they're, they're not fixed in, in, when you look up at the sky, they'll be zipping across from one side to the other. That's where the International Space Station is. It's where the Hubble Space Telescope is. These things, if you know where to look, you can find websites that tell you where to look. And if you're pretty clever, you can actually see them go by. So it's relatively close. For radio communications, it's very nice because the closer you are to a radio source, the easier it is to communicate. You need less power. So that's where all these constellations of internet broadband satellites are showing up, like uh, SpaceX's Starlink satellites, for example. These are going to be thousands of new satellites showing up relatively low. And that's because they can communicate by radio uh, pretty easily when they're that low in the sky. So that's where 
most of the satellites go. That's where it's easiest to get to. And that's where things like the International Space Station are. Lots and lots of stuff is up there in LEO. I want to talk a little bit about that too, in terms of the the crowdedness, the fact that there are thousands of satellites. And, and I had talked about this with John Skillings earlier uh, in the first part of this satellite package that we've been doing on CNET. But how does that work? Like, is there enough? I get that space. There's a lot of space around there, but with thousands of satellites all orbiting Earth, like how do they not run into each other? Yeah, it's a problem. So you need government approval for getting your satellites into space. And the satellites are not just passive for the most part. They have propulsion systems. And one of the reasons they have to use those propulsion systems is to steer out of the path of other satellites. So there are problems every now and then. For example, an Iridium communication satellite a few years ago smashed into a no longer working Russian satellite. And that sent out just thousands of little tiny pieces of metal everywhere. And that's a big problem. And there are actually people, governments and private sector companies who track that, all that debris, orbital debris, the space junkyard. And so yes, space is really big, but also these guys sit up there in space. And after a certain period of time, there's, you know, a, a high probability something will collide with something else. Now, their radar tracking systems, there are people who keep track of this kind of thing. So for the known satellites, you can maneuver out of the way. Orbits also are, you know, fairly predictable. So there are a lot of situations where you can predict well in advance if there's going to be a problem. And there are different altitudes. You know, if your uh, Starlink satellites are orbiting at this particular elevation, then uh, perhaps, uh, you know, the Amazon Kuiper satellites, which are going to do much the same thing, they'll be just a little bit higher. So they'll be kind of in a different skin of the onion, so to speak, uh, a little bit higher above the earth. So they can kind of be kind of on independent roadways. And it's, you know, it's three-dimensional. It's it's not like two roads on the earth intersecting. It's like one road going above another road. So there are, uh, you know, these satellites are, there certainly is a, a collision risk. Uh, and not all of these satellites are in a nice uh, shell where they're going to be avoiding all the other satellites. Some go in and out of different shells. So you have to be careful about it. And the more satellites are going to be up there, the more difficult that's going to be to track. Uh, you, you talked about a number of different other elevations. There's medium Earth orbit. There's geosynchronous orbit. What exactly belongs up there? That's not as useful as low Earth orbit because the radio communication delays are longer. You need a higher power transmission to get data in and out, but there still are uh, some communication satellites in medium Earth orbit. So medium Earth orbit is basically right above low Earth orbit, 2,000 kilometers, up to about 36,000 kilometers. So that's a much bigger range, and it's much emptier. The most interesting thing in medium Earth orbit are the GPS satellite constellations. So those are groups of 24 or more satellites that beam down a signal that lets us navigate by smartphone or by car. Uh, they're pretty clever systems, and they've actually been up there for a while. For, in the case of the U.S. is GPS, but now there are other ones. Russia's GLONASS, Europe's Galileo, another one uh, from China is just going on online right now. So that's up in medium Earth orbit. And then up right at the very, by definition, at the very top medium Earth orbit 
is what's called geosynchronous orbit and a special type of geosynchronous orbit called geostationary orbit. Now, this is really clever. At this elevation, this altitude, one orbit of a satellite takes exactly one rotation period of the Earth. So it is rotating above the Earth at the exact same speed the Earth is rotating below it. And what that means is that you, it's very easy to communicate with a satellite. So if, you, if it's in geostationary orbit, it's right above the equator. And that means you can point a, a, a dish antenna straight at that satellite and it stays in the exact same spot in space all the time in, in the sky. So it's not like the sun that whizzes overhead or the stars that wheel overhead or other satellites in low Earth orbit that zip overhead. The geostationary orbit will park a satellite right above a specific spot. So that's really useful for communication satellites and some other things. There's some weather satellites that like that, uh, the scientists like to have a fixed, the fixed same view of the Earth all day, every day. So geostationary orbit is actually kind of crowded because there are a lot of people who want to have a, a piece of that real estate, so to speak, up in space. That's very high up, but it's very useful. It turns out, though, that geostationary orbit is is good for uh, if for communicating with people who are relatively close to the equator. It turns out Russia is not particularly close to the equator. So geostationary satellites aren't very useful for them. So sometimes uh, there are different types of orbits. One I thought that was really neat is called the Molniya orbit. And that's uh, an orbit that is very uh, elliptical. It's very eccentric. So the satellite goes zipping past the Earth really fast. Uh, in this case, underneath, or excuse me, above Australia. That when it's at closest to the Earth, it goes really fast. And then it loops out farther away from the Earth where the orbit, where its speed slows down a lot until it gets far away from the earth and then it zips back around and it does this um, uh, twice a day with a, there are actually two satellites that will follow each other around in this loop. What that means is there during the period when it's far away from the earth, it's up above Russia. So it actually is moving quite slowly there and it's useful for uh, communications across Russia. It's up in a higher latitude. And then when it goes zipping by the earth, it's on the other side of the earth from Russia. Russians don't care about it then. But then it's all they've always got one sort of moving slowly above Russia. So it's not exactly geostationary orbit, but it's close enough that it works the same way. So there's some pretty clever tricks you can do with orbits. And I'm not even going to get into some of the crazy stuff like getting it, getting to the moon, which was sort of basically tying together a, a bunch of different orbits one after another. Uh, you think of rockets just going through space, but really kind of what they're doing is switching from one orbit to another often. So, you, you know, you talked about the importance of, you know, orbits and the fact that they're continually working on it. The, the fact that, you know, low Earth orbit is a relatively recent thing. Uh, I don't know if you could talk a little bit about just sort of the direction that the, the study and the research is going. Uh, and if there's what I guess what is in store for the future of this study, this look at how things orbit around the Earth. Sure. So. Orbits are relatively well understood in terms of the, the physics. What is interesting is the engineering is changing so much and so dramatically. So it used to be really, 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 really hard to get something up into orbit. But through new rocket technology and through new miniaturization technology, you can get more stuff and more useful stuff into orbit. So at this point, uh, the, uh, in particular led by Elon Musk's SpaceX, the cost of launching 
something into orbit has been going down steadily. They pioneered the use of uh, reusable rockets, you know, where most of the rocket comes back down, lands on a drone ship or a launch pad somewhere. They spruce it up and then they send it up again. That saves a lot of money on rocket launch costs. And obviously Elon Musk wants to do this because he wants to get humans to Mars, which, you know, you might be kind of sci-fi, but in the meantime, it's delivering cheaper launch costs for satellites. And there's some other competitors out there doing the same thing. So the cost of launching a kilogram of into orbit is decreasing, and that is making possible uh, a lot of new projects. One of those, there's something called CubeSats, which are these tiny little things that you could hold one in your hand. Uh, they're often not propelled or anything. They're just sort of science fair projects. You can even, uh, they're even high school projects <laughs> who've managed to get satellites into low earth orbit. They'll stay up there for six months or so before the friction with the air pulls them down and they burn up. So they don't stay up there forever. But now all of a sudden th there's a lot of new uh, opportunity in space and that's got a lot of people excited. It's still hard to get into orbit. It's still hard to maintain an orbit. But there's a lot more you can do up there now. That's why we're seeing this explosion in, of interest in internet broadband satellites. All of a sudden, that's coming uh, within you know the range of possibility. Instead of being sci-fi, it's something that actually can be accomplished. Uh, well, thanks for your time, Shank. I really appreciate the fact that you're here to break this down for me because I can hardly understand any of it. You can check out his story on CNET.com. By the way, today is National Computer Security Day. If you have it, take a moment to observe it by remembering to create strong passwords, update your security software, and make sure to encrypt and back up all your data. If you have any questions, hit us up on Twitter at The Daily Charge or send me a text message by signing up at 646-461-4291. Also, please subscribe and rate the show. It really helps us out. For The Daily Charge, I'm Roger Chang. Thanks for listening.